as you turn to Ezekiel, I, I'm going to pause just a little bit today uh, because I, I feel as we approach this book, as we continue our study through the scriptures and, and we are immersed in, in the books of the prophets, I, I felt the need this morning to pause and teach just a little bit opposed to preaching. The preaching will come later but I, I felt there was a need to catch us up on some things and, and see where we're at. Besides, as if you've read along, and I hope some of you, some of you have been reading uh, these books of the Bible as we're going through them. Some of you have said, well, you know, I wait until after you preach it, then I read through it. And that's fine too. But if you read through Ezekiel this week, um, wow, there's some interesting things in there. Okay, and you know, we're dealing, over two-thirds of the book of Ezekiel deals with sin and judgment. I mean, that's like a hellfire and brimstone kind of message, and there's nothing wrong with those messages, but we're doing 17 prophetic books, and there's plenty of that to come, right? So this morning, I want to pause and look at where we are in relationship to those 17 prophetic books. I want to look at where we are in the scheme and the plan of, of God's overarching timeline in the scriptures. So as, as we do, I want us to look at the order and locations of the prophets, and I think that's important for us to understand because, like I said, there are those 17 books. Who is the audience? Where are they going to? Who are they speaking to? Is important for us to understand. They're not going to just one audience at one time. This is, is scattered out over a time. So I wanted to just refresh us on where we're at. Remember the northern kingdom. The, the, the kingdom is divided. There's the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom is going to see two writing prophets visit them and write. Those will be Amos and Hosea. We haven't got to those. We will soon. But, but they come and, and share of God's impending judgment on their sin, their lifestyle, and what is coming from Assyria. Assyria will come in and take them into captivity. And it's fascinating to know that they had Elijah and Elisha, two of the greatest prophets that, that, that walked and, and talked to the nation of Israel. And you can see their, their stories, their events, and how God used them in Kings and Chronicles, which we've already gone through. And then there's, there's Edom. Edom is actually a, a brother of, of Israel. Remember Jacob and Esau? Edom are the descendants of Esau. Jacob's name was turned, changed to Israel. Remember when he wrestled with God. Okay, and, and so these are the brothers, and God has something to say to them. God is working with them and has a heart for them. And we'll see Obadiah is the man that God sends to those people. Real quickly, you're going to begin to see that God actually has a heart for all people. That's comforting to me because I'm not an Israelite. I'm not Jewish. 
I'm a Gentile. And we see here through, through the prophets that God not only had a concern for his chosen people, Israel, he has a concern for the hearts of mankind. I love that. And then we move into the prophets that go and, and share and speak with Judah, that southern uh, kingdom where Jerusalem is and the temple is housed there. And we see that God sends Joel and Isaiah. We already went through Isaiah and saw the powerful message there. Uh, Micah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and then Jeremiah. He's the last prophet that will go to Judah, that southern kingdom, before they're taken into captivity by Babylon. And Jeremiah, we saw, wrote lamentations as well as he saw the fall of, of God's people. It broke his heart. We, we also see, though, Assyria may have been God's tool to bring judgment on Israel, but, but God cared about those people. And when we look at the books of, of Jonah and Nahum, we are going to see God's heart for these Gentile nations, a nation like Assyria, as vicious as it was. And then in Babylon. Today we're going to look at, at Ezekiel, and in two weeks we'll look at Daniel. But we see that as, as the people are in captivity in Babylon, that the message is not only given to God's people in this place, but there's a message to Babylon as well. That, that message is greater seen in the book of Daniel. But what a blessing that God would even send his prophets to share his message, his words, while the people are in captivity. And then there's those prophets, after the people return to the land, after they are back and they're settled there, and they're rebuilding the temple, they're rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, God goes and still sends his prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, to deliver his words, his truths. To challenge them in, in the way they live now that they have returned and to warn them about the way that they are still having those tendencies to drift away from him. And truth be told, we can come back, but regardless of us coming back to Christ, sometimes we can find our own selves drifting, can't we? And we need that message, that word from the Lord to draw us back to himself. And we see that with these prophets here. You know what's really cool? Is that last prophet, Malachi, or some like to call him the Italian prophet, you know, Malachi. But, but we see that there's one final prophet that's going to come. There's a prophet that's going to come and prepare the way for the Messiah. And that last and final prophet would be John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. And we'll get to see him when we approach the, the Gospels. But currently we find ourselves in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is in Babylon with those who have been taken captive. That is where he is ministering among the people. 
And there are things that God is going to reveal to Ezekiel that he's going to share with Ezekiel and his people that it helps us to understand where those things fit in in the biblical timeline. We began our, our studies in the book of Genesis as we went through this, and we looked at several things in the timeline of the biblical narrative. And we, we saw the, the creation and God creating all that we have and see around us, including you and I. And he breathed the breath of life into us. There we see that he plays the, the man and the woman into the Garden of Eden. And that is where sin entered the world when mankind chose to disobey God. Yes, tempted, but they made the choice to disobey and sin entered the world. We, we see very quickly that man's sin digresses rapidly. We see murder, we see sin of all kinds, and God sends his judgment. It's amazing, continually through Scripture, we see that man struggles with sin, God judges sin over and over and over, and we see that with the flood. And then we see God begin to really clarify his promise, and he begins to work with Abraham. And then we see... In, in the, 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 with Abraham, they're taken into Egypt. We see God bring out his people, a people called out, the nation of Israel. God gives him his law, his standard. And in a beautiful way, God begins to reveal himself in greater and greater ways to his people, to mankind. Aren't you glad that we have a God that wants to reveal himself for us to know him? Not one that keeps himself distant. Not one that says, well, you made your bed, now lie in it. No, he draws close. He desires an intimate relationship. And we see that as, as it unfolds. And we see the, the judges and the kings come into play. And, and as that happens, we see an individual, Samuel, come onto the scene. Samuel is the first of the prophets, the last of the judges. And God begins to reveal his word through his prophets. We see quickly that the kingdom is divided. But God continues to work with both kingdoms. His heart is for his people. His heart cries out. And in the divided kingdom, we see that Assyria will come in and take the northern kingdom into captivity. And very quickly, regardless of the messages God sends through his prophets, they're taken into Babylonian captivity. It's interesting, when they're taken into that Babylonian captivity, and we'll see this in Daniel, it begins a time called the time of the Gentiles, when God begins to work with the Gentile nations in a more intensified way and manner, and it's beautiful, and we'll see that as we look at the book of Daniel, and it continues on all the way through the church age. It's wonderful to watch this unfold in the scriptures. But then we see after that, that exile period of 70 years, God brings his people back to the land. And when they come back to the land, God has a message for them. He has them rebuild the temple. He has them rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The city is there and things are being prepared for the coming Messiah. Messiah. 
But there's this time of 400 years where there seems to be silence. There's no prophet. There's no messenger revealing new revelation. But God is working. And we see that in the book of Daniel. But after that time, the Messiah arrives. We see Jesus Christ come onto the scene, and we'll look at that in the Gospels, and we see His life lived and demonstrated. God in the flesh, the Word comes. God communicates His love, His passion, His desire for you and I in a beautiful, powerful way. And then at the cross, we see the Messiah cut off. The atonement made, that blood atonement taught all the way back at the very beginning with the law. The blood atonement necessary for sin. I find it fascinating that we have 17 prophetic books that deal with the sin of the people. The need to repent and truth be told, by the time we are done with these prophetic books, you are going to be sick and tired of hearing about sin. It is going to have a filth and a bad taste in your mouth, as it should. But as we look at that, and we see the Messiah come and atone for that sin, we see His death his burial and resurrection. And the gospel, the good news goes forth. The church begins. And, and Christ himself ascends into heaven where he is our mediator. And that's where we are right now. We're somewhere right in here. I hope we're closer here than there. But we're somewhere in that, that time of the church. That's where we're at. And we are eagerly anticipating not the return of Christ. But the bridegroom coming for his bride to rapture her into his arms. We look for the rapture of the church where Christ himself will call up the church to himself. And we will meet him in the clouds. Thessalonians talks about that. And then begins that seven-year tribulation. Daniel speaks to that as well. And it's at this time that we see God begin to work with the nation of Israel once again. The seven-year tribulation, a horrific time. Revelation speaks to the atrocities that occur. There's three different views of the, of the rapture. There, there are those that, that hold to a, a pre-trib view where Christ will come for His church at the beginning of the tribulation. That's where our church stands in the teaching. We believe and see in Scripture that Christ comes for His bride at the very beginning of that. There are those that see in Scripture where Christ will come halfway through that tribulation time and gather to Himself His church, His bride. And there, there's a third view, and I really struggle with this view, is, is the post-trib where Christ comes, He gathers His bride at the very end of that tribulation, and then immediately after calling her to himself, he comes back and returns. That view I have a harder time with. But at the end of that tribulation period, 
marks the beginning of a time called the millennial kingdom, the millennial reign. It is where Jesus Christ himself will come down. That is the return of Christ. Christ returns to earth. He will sit on the throne of David. And he will rule the world with an iron rod. For the first time ever, we will have a just and righteous ruler. And he will sit on David's throne for a thousand years. Ezekiel speaks to this time in great and vivid detail. There's three different views of, of the millennial uh, reign. There's, there's those that hold to the post-millennial reign. And, and, or millennialism, and it's, uh, they hold that the time is, is leading up to the return of Christ, that the millennial is leading up to his return, and that by sharing the gospel by the church, causing the world to come to Christ, once that occurs, then Christ returns. That's a very difficult thing to see as we look around this world, though, because our world progressively is getting worse and worse. We see that the church is, is, is slowly getting smaller, that truth and justice is, is absent. There's the all-millennialist view that denies that there's actually a literal millennial reign. It's not a literal thousand years on earth, but it's, it's produced in uh, the reign of Christ, the spiritual reign in the hearts of believers. And, and it's, it's a picture of that. And, and those who put their trust in Christ and, and those in heaven. And then there's the third view, which is premillennialism. Both amillennial and postmillennial interpret Revelation in a non-literal sense. It's, it's more of an allegorical approach. Premillennialism refers to the literal thousand-year reign of Christ following his second coming to earth. And, and as, as we see that, we see that there is a literal throne that Jesus Christ himself will sit on, and Jesus returns before the millennium to rule on earth for a literal thousand years. Our church, our doctrine holds to the literal interpretation of Scripture. Because of that, as we read and discover the closing chapters in Ezekiel, we, we will see a beautiful description of the temple to come during this reign of Christ on earth. We will see his powerful reign in Jerusalem depicted in, in powerful and majestic ways. With that, let's, let's look at this book of Ezekiel. Like I said, there's, there's a little more teaching today than preaching. But I wanted us to kind of have a framework of where we sit in, in the, the timeline of Scripture and where we are with those prophets. And right now we have a prophet that's captive in Babylon. And the Lord comes to him there. Ezekiel receives a call from God to be God's prophet. 
That call is recorded for us in chapter 3 of Ezekiel, verses 1 through 7. I'd like you to read along with me. Three chap- or chapter 3, verse 1 reads this way. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me this scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with the scroll which I am uh, giving you. Then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to, him, to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speak or difficult language, but to the house of Israel, nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech or di- oh, wait, speech or difficult language, whose words you cannot understand. But I have sent you to them who should listen to you. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you since they are not willing to listen to me. Surely, the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. That's his call. That is where Ezekiel begins his ministry. This is what I'm calling you to. You will declare my words. My words will be sweet to you, but they will disregard them. Oh, that we would never be a people that disregard the word of God. Ezekiel's call comes as God reveals a beautiful, powerful vision to him. A vision of the glory of God. And he's sitting on the banks of the river in Babylon. Think about that. This man, Ezekiel, who was a priest... And it says on his 30th birthday, this is when a priest would begin his priestly ministry. And here Ezekiel sits along the riverbed. How many of you have ever sat by a body of water and just pondered? I have. Whether it be the sea, the ocean, the rivers, a lake. But he's by the river. He's about to turn 30, or he's turned 30, the time when he should be starting his priestly work in the temple. But he's in Babylon. There is no temple. There is no priestly work to be done. I imagine at this point, Ezekiel would feel worthless. Discouraged. Depressed. Things in life can cause that, but it's in this moment that God sends the vision of His glory. It's a magnificent vision. And then He goes, wait a minute. What is the glory of God doing in Babylon? Should it not be in the temple in the Holy of Holies? And He's amazed. 
that the very glory of God would be there. There's going to be three powerful visions throughout the book of Ezekiel. And God is going to use this man to declare his truth. He's going to have him demonstrate in some very graphic imagery and signs as, as he ministers to the people of Israel. There is some confusing stuff in here. God, first of all, tells him with some sticks and rocks and all of this to, to build a, a little Jerusalem and demonstrate the siege that is going to come. And he obeys and he demonstrates that. The people look on in, in wonder and awe. Remember, there's, there's three sieges that come, and it's the third siege of Jerusalem where Jerusalem is decimated. And it's coming. And he demonstrates that. He, God has him chop off his hair, cut it up with a sword, and burn it, and do different things. And he says, this is the stench of your sin. This is what you have done. This is where you are. And then there's another one that's really hard to get your head around. For an entire year, God says, I want you to tie yourself up. You are to lay on your side. You are to only drink water and only eat bread that is cooked over human feces. Ew, yeah, I know, right? Ezekiel responds to God and says, God, I have never defiled myself in this way. God, please don't make me do this. And God relents and says, fine, you can cook it over cow dung. For an entire year. Throughout Ezekiel, we see how awful and disgusting our sin is. The stench that it leaves in the nostrils of a holy, righteous God. And God tries to give a picture of it. He goes, here's just a little bit. Bread should be wonderful. It should be tasty. It should be fulfilling. It sustains life, does it not? Yet I want you to cook it over human feces. That's the picture I want you to have of your sin. And everybody goes, ugh. Ezekiel pulls back, repulsed, and says, please. Isn't it beautiful that God, even though sin is that disgusting and worse, God in His grace and His mercy relents. He says, fine, you can do this. And there's still that picture of judgment. We see the sin and idolatry of the people in vivid detail. I will caution some of the youth as you read this, there is vivid imagery of how awful and disgusting sin is in the eyes of a holy, righteous God. Fornicating with other gods, sacrificing babies, taking the very gifts and blessings that God Almighty has, has given you, given His people, and paying their lovers of adultery and the foreign gods with them. And God is sickened. We have 17 prophetic books that over and over give the imagery and the disgustingness of our sin. 
And then we have the Gospels where we see a holy, righteous, pure Lamb of God. And God says, I will place that sin on him. Remember that. We see another vision of the glory of God. And in this vision, the glory of God is leaving the temple. Inside the walls of the temple, we see horrific, just disgusting practices of the priest, the religious ones, prophets that, that call themselves prophets, and the people prostituting themselves in the holy place. And the glory of God leaves the temple and goes east. It goes east to Babylon. Isn't it amazing that even in the judgment, God demonstrates a, a glimmer of hope. He says, listen, this is your sin, but I, my glory, myself, I will be with you. And he goes to where they are. Why? Because God is continually seeking and pursuing to restore his people to himself. That is where God's people were, and that is where God was going to be. Mark my words, regardless of where you are in life, God will pursue you. I love in this book that we see a, a, a picture of God as a shepherd and his pursuit after his people. It's fervent. It's passionate. Oh, to be pursued that way. I got to tell you, that was, that was an encouraging thing. We, we see in this vision that, that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. God says, Ezekiel, there's, I'm going to use you as an example for the people your wife is going to die and you will not grieve you will not grieve for her you will not create the the mourning process the funeral ceremony you will not do this and it will be a picture for Israel when they see their temple when they see their Jerusalem demolished they should not grieve. Why? Because they had this coming. They brought this on themselves. Their sin did this. And he says, this is the picture you will give to Israel. And Ezekiel obeys. What a picture. The very woman he loved and he can't grieve for her is a picture for Israel. What a picture for God. He says, I am not going to grieve for this. You brought this on yourself. This is the just consequences of your actions. How many of you right now, you're kind of like, whoa. I think it's necessary to see this church. Our sin... We need to have a right perspective of our sin because if we do not, we will never
fully understand the amazing, powerful, grace-filled, mercy-given gift of the cross. God's full wrath and judgment was laid out at Calvary because sin is that bad. And judgment has to come upon sin. And Jesus Christ himself took that judgment. I love that in the picture of of Ezekiel, as Ezekiel is dealing with the judgment of Judah, he also deals with the judgment of the Gentiles. God is dealing with sin on all levels, all nations. And I love that God is at work not only in the hearts of Judah, but in the hearts of the Gentiles. Look with me. I love these verses. Look at this. In chapter 11, we read this in verse 19. And I... Notice it's not Israel. It's not Ezekiel. It's not a prophet. It's not the people. He says, and I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. You turn over. And in chapter 36, he says it again as he has dealt with the nations, as he has declared their judgment that is coming. And he declares that judgment nation by nation by name. No longer would Egypt be a great and powerful nation in the world ever again because of this judgment. But he says this in 36, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God is interested in the heart of the people. And when God deals with the heart, he is dealing with the individual. Ezekiel gives a powerful, beautiful, encouraging message. He says, listen, it doesn't matter about your father, your mother. It doesn't matter about your family past. It doesn't matter about your brother or your sister. If they followed God, you have the responsibility to follow God. If they rejected me, you have the responsibility to follow me. He says, it's your decision. How exciting is that? Because all of us sitting here have a past. All of us sitting here can look back to things that have happened in the past, things in our family, and we can go, oh God. And God says, I'm looking for your decision, your choice. Beautifully displayed here. God is going to restore them. He's going to bring them back to the land. Aren't you glad that we have a God that is in the restorative work? He doesn't look at these relics, these broken pottery vessels, and say, trash. He looks and he says, I can restore that. I can restore you. I can take the brokenness and I can make something beautiful. And he did that at Calvary. Oh, the restorative work of our God. In the last and final vision, we see that there is a field, a valley of all these dead bones. I was really hoping the worship team would sing, these are the days of Elijah, and and talking about that. It's okay, we sing it a lot here. 
Next time you do, think about this. And as Ezekiel looks, there's all these dead bones. And truth be told, we can look in our hearts, our lives. Some of you here may be without a relationship with Christ, and you are a pile of dead bones. But we have a God who breathes life. Who restores the flesh, who restores the life to those dead bones. And they come back and they rejoice, and it is amazing. In the final chapters, we see that God is restoring. He is going to restore the rule on David's throne. Oh, they would see that once again. He is going to restore his city, Jerusalem. He is going to restore the temple and worship. Oh, people will gather around and worship. And the promise of the Messiah brings hope for these people. Aren't you glad that we have a God that continually, even in our judgment, says, here's some hope. Hold on to it. I love that. Worship and fellowship return. The overall emphasis, and, and I just, I can't get away from this, of this book, is I am Yahweh. Throughout this book, we see God declare himself as Lord. Many of your English translations where it's stated, Lord, I am Lord, that, that Hebrew word is Yahweh. You breathe in, you breathe out. The name of God, the very breath of God. I am the sustainer of life, he says. I am Yahweh. Look, look with me at this passage. I love chapter 38, verse 25. God says this, I, I will magnify myself. 38, verse 20, sorry, 23. That dyslexia kicking in there. 23. I will magnify myself. Isn't it great when God lets us magnify him? But mark my words, he doesn't need you to magnify him. He wants us to. He desires it. It brings that smile to his heart when we do. But he doesn't need it. He can do it on his own. Mark my words. And he says, I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations. And they will know that I am the Lord. They will know that I am Yahweh. Isn't that exciting that God can do that on his very own? It is God who is going to sanctify for himself a people. It is God who does the work. Talk about sovereignty. We see it beautifully in this book. Over 309 times in this book, we see the phrase, I will, and it says what God will do. I will do it. God is the one working. Uh, over 25 times we read, and this is really concerning, I have spoken. In other words, what I have just said, what I will do, will happen. He will not deviate. It is his plan, and his plan will prevail. Awesome! 
And over 80 time, 85 times in this book, we read, so they may know the things in which God is doing, the things in which God is having Ezekiel declare is so that the people, the nations, Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, 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 all peoples, all nations will know that He is Lord. We have a God who wants man to know Him. We have a God who draws close that we may know Him. I love the last verse in this book where God is describing the, the kingdom, the new Jerusalem, the, the nation of Israel. And in verse 35 of chapter 48, he says, the city shall be 18,000 cubits round, and the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. Yahweh is there. He will once again sit on his throne and we will dwell with him. Oh, that you and I, because of our Redeemer, because of our Savior, can have a relationship with him. The one who restores and we will dwell with him. Let's pray. God, justice has not been done this morning to the description of our sin. And no mere words could ever truly depict your glory, your holiness. that we could fully stand in awe of you. But God, I pray that you would work the convicting work, you would work the restorative work within our hearts and our lives that we would look to you. God, we would look to Calvary and understand our sin, your judgment, and your grace. We would look to you in awe and reverence. And as we do, God, we would just have hearts of praise. God, we would have lives that are lived out for you. God, I pray that we would have a better picture of your holiness a clearer understanding of the stench and filth of our sin. And in comparison, God, we would choose to follow you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please?